Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. I went to a pretty diverse school, but I was one of three Muslims. And so everyone's like, what is on your head? From 14 to 26, covering my hair was this secret weapon. I knew what people were thinking, right? That I was going to be shy or I was from a faith that doesn't appreciate and support women. All the assumptions people might have when they see someone who overtly expresses their religion, right? And I loved it. I was like, I get to change every perception you have about me. And it was a sense of confidence. And I also think as a woman, it really pushed that type of attention away from me that felt very important and protective. And so I all of a sudden had all these ways of controlling my narrative. My name is Sada Salem, and I am a modern minority. Welcome to Modern Minorities. This is a show about work and life told through the lens of what makes each of us different. I'm Sharon Lee Tony, a Chinese-American girl born and raised in New York City. And I'm Roman Segal, an Indian-American boy who came from Alabama with a banjo on my knee. Through conversations with some really interesting people, we uncover the stories, perspectives, and often unspoken truths about how our guests uniquely experience the world. It doesn't matter where you're from, the color of your skin, or who you love. We're all minorities somehow, but we're no one's model minority. This is a show about all of you, for all of us. On today's show, we're talking to Sarah Salam. Sarah's many things, a Muslim woman, a cancer survivor, an environmental activist. And for the month of Ramadan, we wanted to air episodes talking to Muslim guests, Muslim Americans, to hear their experience, because we all know them, but we don't know enough about them. So. Sharon, what'd you think of Sada? I really enjoyed having her on the show. And I particularly enjoyed, Raman, you asking her a lot of questions that I feel like I had in my head, but just never found the words to speak. I'm really good at asking dumb questions. It helps to be very dumb. It's a a very good talent of yours. (laughs) I'm exceptionally qualified. (laughs) And I I in particular, you know, I have a special relationship with 9-11 because I was in New York living a few blocks away from the World Trade Center when it happened. And so whenever someone has a story about September 11th, it it just brings me back to that moment, which obviously was super traumatic to experience. But to hear her, her perspective of it and how that changed her own relationship with herself and her faith, I thought was really inspiring. For the better, too. Yeah, yeah. It's, I think, in so much of our existence as minorities, sometimes it's about assimilating and fitting in and choosing to go the other way. You know, I became 
much more friendly. I shaved my beard a lot more <laughs> in the post 9-11 era. And as you'll hear from Sada as an Egyptian American, she leaned into her faith and her culture. And mm-hmm. uh, worth noting, the mutual connection is her cousin Donya happens to be someone in Egypt, happens to be someone I do some work with for a nonprofit. And so the introduction was ancillary because we don't hear enough Muslim stories in this country. And I think because of that, it's, it comes core to our podcast. If you don't understand something, it becomes an other. And yeah. when something becomes an other, the stereotypes, right or wrong, creep in. And so to hear Sarah's stories of her faith and her practice and her opinions, wearing hijab, yep. doing hajj and going to Mecca and what the experience was for her, it really demystifies it a lot more. And I think that's really important for all of us to hear. Yep. I totally agree. So we hope you enjoy our conversation with our friend Sada. Sada, thank you so much for coming on the pod. It's great to have you here. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to talk with you both. So Sada, I got to ask, where are you from? <laughs> do, you, do you ever get asked that? <laughs> always. <laughs> that's How do you really, answer that? I always, so my origin, my both my parents are Egyptian. So I'm actually the first person in my family to be born in the US. So I fondly or unfondly always call myself the anchor baby. <laughs> my parents <laughs> came in the 80s, but I was born in Virginia, lived in Houston, but spent most of my youth and young adult life in Philadelphia. So I really identify as a Philadelphian and super proud to be from Philly. But most recently, I've lived in California and just moved to Atlanta, Georgia. So so can you sing the Fresh Prince lyrics by Arthur? <laughs> I can. I don't know if you want me to. <laughs> in West Philadelphia. Yeah, <laughs> that is the last part of Philly I lived in. So feel very uh, attached to Philadelphia. And you totally lived in Bel Air, right? When you got to California. Totally. Yep. I just, you know, if you consider Santa Barbara, <laughs> Bel Air, I guess it's adjacent. <laughs> but yeah. And Pats or Genos? Pats? <laughs> and I don't want to say why. Well, maybe I will say, maybe we can edit it out. Little less racist. And I am always down for Ooh. a little bit less racism. Yeah. When, when, when having my fine dining. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> always great. for that. So Sada, you're infamous, as we like to say. You've come a long way and you're very accomplished. And we'll get into all of that in a moment. But could you tell us a story from your childhood? So many. I'm going to pick one that is a little bit in between that awkward age of 13 into 14 adolescence. And the reason that's I'm gonna, a good age. Yeah. yeah any, anybody who says it wasn't awkward, I'm not friends with them. <laughs> truly, truly. And I was just entering into my freshman year of high school. And I was really always aware of two things in my life. One, I was Egyptian. And two, I was Muslim. These were like two very strong identities for me, ones that aren't easily identifiable when you when you look at me. I'm super racially ambiguous. I've been told I like people have tried to claim me as what they are all the time and that's fine with me. But when you say that, what do you mean? So I've often my entire experience has been like are you this? And I'll be like, no, I'm not that. And they're like, are you sure you're not? And it's happened. <laughs> are you <Wow>. sure? <laughs> are you sure? <laughs> yeah. I'm, and I'm always like, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure. I remember actually in seventh grade, my home ec teacher was trying to guess where we all were from. And she's like, she turns to me, she goes, you're definitely European and you're definitely Jewish. And I was like, 
definitely Egyptian, definitely Muslim. So <laughs> you got it all wrong. And so I just have always experienced that throughout my entire life. Even in Egypt, it's hard for Egyptians to believe I'm Egyptian. And then I have to speak Arabic to them and show them my ID card. But one story that sits with me really strongly is actually 9-11, the day of 9-11. I grew up outside of Philly in a, in a suburb of Philly. And that day I went into class and our teacher, our history teacher would always ask us a question at the beginning of the day. And the question was, why would people fly planes into the Twin Towers? And most of my classmates actually didn't know what the Twin Towers were, even though we're less than 100 miles from New York City. And I rose my hand. I was like, I don't know, some sort of terrorist attack or something like that. And he was like, because it just happened. And you can guess how the rest of the day went. I speak fluent Arabic. I've been going to Egypt since before I could walk. My father still lives there. My entire family lives there. In fact, the only people who live in the U.S. are my mom and my sister of my immediate family and a few second cousins. But everyone's still in Egypt. And so the rest of the day was filled with what are they saying as people were broadcasting all of the news. And I was like, I don't, I'm from Egypt. We speak Arabic. I don't know what they're speaking, what pe what people speak in Afghanistan. And I remember security guard being like, why don't you know, explain to us. And then getting on the bus home and a classmate of mine, who's also of a minority <laughs> said to me, where are you from? And I said, Egypt. He's like, oh, okay, you're okay. And getting off the bus and finding my mom crying in the house. And I asked her, what's wrong? She goes, things are never going to be the same for us. And that set me on a trajectory of really leaning into my faith and really leaning into my identity as a Muslim, as a woman, as an Egyptian American, because I was used to always projecting out what I needed people to know about me. But now I was not just projecting, but I was defending myself. And that for me, actually made my spiritual appreciation for being a Muslim go to a deeper depth, if that makes sense. It, I was constantly trying to explain who I was, what we believed, why we mattered. And I don't think I've stopped that battle since, <laughs> to be honest. Wow. Those awkward teen years for me, and for so many of us, to be clear, were, I don't know about you, Sharon, but suppressing it, hiding mm -hmm. it. I need to assimilate. I'm just like you. Everything about my Indian identity is top secret, only at home and only at temple. And for you, that's just such an inflection point that so many of us don't make until, I don't know, late 30s? Sure. Right. <laughs> yeah. Some of us still haven't gotten there yet. <laughs> <laughs> I felt like I didn't have a choice. And I, and I think to that degree, I've always, my parents really ingrained in me a lot of pride around these things. They weren't, it wasn't about being better than anyone else. It wasn't this conversation of, oh, they're that and you're this. It was more like, this is what you are. This is what we believe. This is what we practice. This is the identities we carry and we're different and that's okay. And you don't need to be like everyone else. So I just had always felt super, I guess, just very at peace with that identity. And it, I think what further ingrained that is when I would go to Egypt for three months out of the year, I was with my family. I was with my cousins. I grew up closely with two cousins. I have an older sister. So it was, we coined ourselves the Backstreet Girls. And we just spent summers together with our grandmothers, like going between households. And so there was this release where I fit in for three months of the year, <laughs> as opposed to the nine months. 
I didn't fit in necessarily as easily. I will say as soon as I left the house, everyone in Egypt knew I grew up in the U.S. <laughs> and I was quickly outed. But within the safe walls of my grandmother's house and my aunt's house, I always felt loved and felt like I had an identity and a faith and a culture that really made me feel grounded. What made you stand out to the Egyptians? What made you so American to them? The clothes, the accent. <laughs> I can speak Arabic pretty well, but I lovingly tell my family that they're not very encouraging. Egyptians will always be like, oh, you say that so cute. Or, <laughs> oh, and it's like, as a very sensitive millennial, I'm like, but please don't make fun of me for that. So things like that, even just the way the mannerisms I have, I think are big indicators. I mean, even to date, my husband is from Brazil and he's brought a Brazilian American similar to myself. We have very similar backgrounds. And we went and had our wedding in Egypt and the Egyptians thought he was Egyptian before they thought I was Egyptian. And I, <laughs> and they would like let him into things easily and then stop me and I'd have to speak to them in Arabic. And so it's a very, I don't know, something about me. There's male like, passing, male passing. <laughs> right, male passing, ambiguous uh, Egyptian passing, I guess. Man, but yeah. Back to growing up in the States. But again, it sounds like you had this back and forth existence with your family in Egypt. But what did you want to be when you grew up? And what did your parents want you to be? Oh, funny that you asked that because... I currently work in the environmental justice space, and I love the job, my, my job. I love how I got here. And it, when I think back of how I got here, so much of it was my experience of feeling othered in the U.S. And so I always loved nature. I've always loved design. It's just two things that I gravitated to really quickly. And so I remember feeling in third grade, I had these three friends and they were all American white women or white girls at the time. And I remember feeling like Wait, I- Wait, white girls at the time? They're not white anymore? <laughs> I think they're so- I mean, they're not- They weren't women at the time. They were I mean, girls I at the time. They could have- They could have- People make decisions. <laughs> not in contact with them anymore. But I remember them talking about going camping and feeling like, oh, that's not a space I go to here. Like that's not a space for black and brown people. And I was in the US, I just had never felt welcomed into that space. So I just remember thinking, oh, that's not for me. That's like not something I need to be interacting with. Even though my experience when I was in Egypt is very typical summer was getting off the plane from the US, my dad telling us we're going the next day to the beach to go camping on the Red Sea. And we all just get in the car. He'd have snacks for us. My grandmother would make us sandwiches and we would just jump from different parts of the Red Sea and scuba dive and camp and get heat stroke and do all the things outdoors. But I think that's universal. <laughs> Parents pack you in a car, snacks and heat stroke. Yeah. They're just, I was like, give it to me. I want it. But I never felt connected to it in the US. And I just always felt very much like that's not my space. That's not where we go. That's a fairly white dominated space. And so when I applied for architecture, or actually when I applied to college, I wanted to go into painting. And my mom is an amazing woman, but she is very much an immigrant mother and was like, you're not going to school for painting. Even though I had gotten like several scholarships for painting at some of the top schools in the Northeast, she had secretly <laughs> changed my major in one of the schools in Philadelphia from art for painting to architecture. And I had no idea. What? what? <laughs> <laughs> I 
she's probably going to be like, secret, why would you tell people I did that? <laughs> but to her, it was my safety school. And she was like, ah, oh, it's not a big deal. I'm just going to switch this one to architecture. I was like, okay, mom, I'm 18. And life happened. Wait, so wait, wait, did she like, she went in after you submitted the, like you finalized the application. She went in when you're sleeping and like erased something and rewrote it? No, no. She had called the administration because the way... <laughs> No, no, way more direct, (laughs) way more direct. The way it was at the time was there was something in Philly called Portfolio Day and you would bring a bunch of your art to a bunch of the major schools. They would come to like the, to a different venue and they would accept you on the spot. And so I had gotten accepted at that time. Thankfully, I was very humbled by the experience by, by these schools. And so the one school, which ended up being the school I went to, I guess I can say it's Temple University, was my safety school because it was like 20 minutes from my mom's house. I was like, no, I'm not going to go there. Even though it's an amazing art school, the Tyler School of Art is an amazing school. And she was like, Sada, I want to switch that one. Or I can't remember the exact conversation, but I know she switched it. And I was like, (laughs) okay, whatever, mom. (laughs) It's chill. You're a doctor. I know me becoming a painter is not your most ideal (laughs) scenario. So long story short is I visited a bunch of schools and I ended up choosing Temple because this is going to sound so immature. But the one school I was really looking at, they'd given another classmate a better scholarship than me. And I was like, they don't understand my art. They don't understand. (laughs) So so arrogant. And so then I ended up going to Temple for architecture. And I think it was honestly, mother knows best. It was maybe the best decision of my life because what it did was it took design and my love for aesthetics and just creation and made it palpable for people. And I've always had a really strong lens around justice and equity work. And our first project was in North Philadelphia. And we were visiting with a community, with the North Philadelphia community. And there was this program called the Village of Arts and Humanities. And what they do is take a lot of vacant lots because Philly has been really part of white flight and had a lot of vacancy when people came back from World War II. But also Levitt towns are very close. They were really established in the Northeast and textile industry left Philadelphia. So you had a lot of impact both economically and socially and to the physical landscape of the city. And so you had empty lots that ended up becoming unsafe spaces for a lot of people in the community. So this nonprofit goes into these vacant lots and creates gardens. And it does that with having people who were impacted by the social justice system be part of that design, become artists as a way of re-entry into the, into the city of Philadelphia and, and into their communities. And so our first project was going to visit them and creating these 12 by 12 pavers for, for, to create a garden with them. And I just remember feeling so floored that you could take creativity and design and make it for people. And you could really impact the way people feel about themselves and their community through design. I had never really conceptualized that at that age. And And it was a lesson that I think really held me in a lot of different ways that I I like don't currently practice directly architecture now, but it is providing me such a strong toolkit for my professional career. So I wanted to be a painter and my mom said, (laughs) your mom stopped that. Yeah. (laughs) She said, not going to (laughs) happen. Nope. Nope. If you're going to go so far down the path of my dreams for you, you are going to at least do it my way. I love it. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Have you ever done anything either in your childhood or even in your adulthood to fit in 
especially when you were telling that 9-11 story, I'm just curious to know if behavior changed after that or if there was anything specific that you can recall. That is such a great question. And I think it speaks to a very interesting journey. I think a lot of, I can speak for myself, obviously, but I've, I've shared this experience with a lot of other women of color, North African and, and African-American and Black women of the journey of our hair. And I think this will speak to my practice of being a Muslim, and it will also speak to just how interesting life can take you. So I have very, very curly hair. It is very normal (laughs) as an African woman to have curly hair. But I actually never knew how to take care of my hair until a friend of mine who's Afro-Brazilian taught me how to take care of my hair. So that, and that was like well into my mid-20s. So when 9-11 happened, I actually became really, I'm a very extroverted person. I always tell my co-workers, I am actually like a solar panel. People give me life. When I'm not around people, I don't work as well. And so when 9-11 happened, I became really introverted. And I think that was out of a space of feeling super vulnerable in a way I hadn't necessarily felt before. And I think I was at an age to really take in those external inputs, right? Like I was aware of the news, I was experiencing racism and Islamophobia on a very normal basis. And it actually, and up until that time, I would wake up at 5am, wash my hair and blow dry it for three hours just to wear it to school. And if it was humid or if I sweat, it would just curl back up. But I did that for from the age of, I want to say 12, until I started to actually cover my hair. So I wore hijab from the age of 14 till 26. And part of that decision was, it must have been 20 or 2003, right before the US entered into Iraq for weapons of mass destruction. And I went to DC with my family and a bunch of other Muslim families for a protest. And when you were in a church and all these people were protesting against this, against the attacks that were going to happen. And I was there and I was like, nobody knows I'm Muslim. Nobody sees this on me. And I was really humbled to see people who weren't Muslim fighting to protect the Muslim country and fighting to protect Arabs and fighting against a war that they felt was unjust. And I felt really drawn to want to wear my faith on me. I wanted people to know that I was Muslim because I was really proud of it. I had, and I continue to be, I'm not saying it's in the past. And so I remember that night I went to stay at my friend's house and I was like, Medium, I'm going to cover my hair. And she was like, okay. And she had brothers. So then it was like one o'clock at night. I like put on a scarf and I was walking around the house. And then the next morning, my mom picked me up and I was wearing it. And she's like, what are you really? Did your mom wear a hijab? She did. She started wearing it at 40 after she'd made pilgrimage to To Mecca. Mecca, Yeah. So she had done Hajj, which is one of our five pillars of Islam. I want to ask about that too. But so mom picks you up. All of a sudden you've got a headscarf. Yeah. And she starts crying and she's like, are you really going to do this? And I was like, yeah, I really am going to do this. And so the next, it must've been a a Friday or Saturday night. So that Monday when I went to school and I was either, I want to say I was in 10th grade at the time. So this is post 9-11, maybe yeah, 2003 era. And I go into home, my homeroom and 
I come in a little bit late because I'm so nervous to go into school with a headscarf. I went to a pretty diverse school, but I was one of three Muslims. The other Muslims were a pair of brothers who were from Pakistan, and then it was my sister and I. And so I get there, and everyone's like, what is on your head? And someone was like, did you get cancer? I don't think they knew at that point they were foreshadowing something for me. And I was like, no, I'm just I'm Muslim. I'm covering my hair. And and we'll get to this, but I stopped covering my hair at the age of 26. But from 14 to 26, covering my hair served me in so many different ways. Did Whether, you find it a conversation starter or did people want to skip around it? Oh, never mind your friends back then, but after. Yeah, I think it was a big conversation starter. And it was also this secret weapon of I knew what people were thinking to a degree, right? Like I can't read people's mind, but I knew what they thought, right? I think. I always get surprised at how many people don't have. What did what did you think they friends. were thinking? Well, they had their assumptions that I was going to be shy, or I was from a faith that doesn't appreciate and raise and support women. They probably thought I all the assumptions people might have when they see someone who maybe overtly expresses expresses their like their religion, right? And I loved it. I was like, I get to change every perception you have about me. And it was a sense of confidence. And I also think as a woman, I had matured into a space where I was getting attention that I wasn't necessarily comfortable with. And it really pushed that type of attention away from me in a way that felt very important and protective as I was going through my my years of puberty and adolescence and not wanting that attention. Because one, as a Muslim, I was I practice not dating. And so there was always that confusion, like, why don't you date? And I was like, because I'm Muslim. And not all Muslims practice that. I don't want to be a monolith. And boys are icky. But yeah. And yeah. boys are icky. Yeah. And very, <laughs> They're too much uh, trouble. There's too much trouble. <laughs> and so I, I all of a sudden had all these ways of controlling my narrative. And it was self-control. Your faith wasn't controlling you. Your choice allowed you to have this control. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And my parents were were never heavy-handed. I mean, I think my father, when I decided to wear it, he told me, he's like, are you sure? You don't have to feel pressured to do this. And if you change your mind, that's okay. Which I don't know if that's a lot of people's experience, but my right. parents always took their time with us. And so it was fantastic. And I think going back to your question, Sharon, around hair, when I was, <laughs> this is going to be a huge leap, but when I was 21, I was diagnosed with ovarian cancer. And that experience, which I'm, I still get checked on and thankfully can can say I'm, I'm cancer-free for the last five years, plus that experience had actually drew so much on my hair because here I was, a veiled person who was losing her hair and nobody knew. And I'm, yeah. And I remember a professor saying to me, you look fine. You still have your eyebrows and well, at least you cover your hair. Nobody knows that you're sick. And I remember being like, oh, that's super weird and feels inauthentic. And part of me even covering my hair was wanting to be super authentic mm -hmm. to who I was. Yeah. But I'll stop there because I feel like I, I want to fast forward to being 26 and then having that decision be reversed. What yeah. happened? What happened then? Right. And so that decision can't actually be shared without talking through the decision or the experience of having cancer. So when I was 21, I turned 21, my mom had these weird premonitions and she became very protective on my 21st birthday, which 
ironically, my birthday's in two days. So it's very funny. <laughs> Happy early birthday. <laughs> Thank you. It's very funny thinking back on it now. But I remember she made me go with her to go visit her second cousin. And I wasn't allowed to tell anyone it was my birthday. And I really wanted to go skydiving and she wouldn't let me. So fast forward that year, I studied in India for six weeks. And then I lived in Japan for three months. And all the while I was getting sick in these countries. And I just thought it was just a change of environment. I yeah. usually yeah. would get sick, like some sort of food poisoning, new bacteria. It's chill. But when I got back from my study abroad experience in Japan, I had started to experience severe abdominal pain in my abdomen. And I'm a stomach sleeper. And so I remember I was sleeping next to my mom and I woke up in the middle of the night and I was like, mom, I don't know what's going on. I have a really sharp pain. She's like, all right, well, let's go see a gastrologist because I was leaving to Egypt in a few days. And she was like, before you head to Egypt. So I went to the gastrologist and the gastrologist was like, well, you're definitely bloated. I'm not sure what's happening. Let's get some tests running. Let's get a CAT scan. I get the CAT scan and I walk out to my mom and my sister crying. I was like, what's that about? And they're like, oh, nothing, nothing. Little did I know my mom had shared her premonition with my sister. And for her, she felt that that premonition was coming to actualization. And so the next day, I walk up into the room and I hear my mom on the phone with my dad. And my parents are divorced, but they have a really great relationship. And my dad still till this day lives in Egypt. And she was calling him and she had a fax from the doctor. And the scan said I had an 11 by 17 by 21 centimeter tumor in my abdomen. So it's like a five month baby. <laughs> and it was around New Year. So this is like the 30th of December. So we go to my my gynecologist and she says, you know, you look five months pregnant. And I was like, well, that's impossible. <laughs> and I had a very calm, non-existent, intimate life. <laughs> so I knew there was no way that there was a possibility of pregnancy, for example. And to that point, I was had been traveling abroad for over nine months. I was just like, not nothing was normal for me to, to put into my scope that I could be sick. So I went into emergency surgery, they removed the tumor. And then I went actually into New York City to Sloan Kettering, where I started chemos. And I went through a regimen of four chemos over the duration of, I think, four or five months. And during that first set of chemos, I was still in school. I was still in my fourth year of architecture school. And I lost my hair. And I continued to wear my scarf. And I leaned so much again into my faith. I think I think so so much of my experiences have always been a way of deepening my understanding of my spirituality and my practice of Islam. And I remember thinking, well, the day I went into surgery for to remove the tumor, I remember my mom was begging the physician to let her put a Quran under my bed or under the pillow. And he was like, ma'am, that's not sanitary. She's like, I'll put it in a plastic bag. Please let me put a Quran under her pillow. And I remember just laying there on the gurney waiting to go into surgery and being like, whatever happens, happens. I feel super grateful for what I've had so far and what I've been able to experience. And it's fine. And it was just me and my practice. It was just me and my spiritual connection at that point. So fast forward, I did relapse three more times. And I remember thinking when I was in my first bout of cancer treatment, if I go through this again, I don't want to hide being a cancer patient. I don't want to make it easy for people. I don't want to make it hard for myself to feel seen. And 
I don't know if I was like betting on myself, but then I did relapse. And when I relapsed the second time, the chemo regimen was way more severe. So it put me into early menopause. I lost both my hair and my eyebrows and my eyelashes. And little pro tip, both of those are really important to your eye health. (laughs) Eyebrows and eyelashes protect a lot of dust. I remember being... (laughs) always having puffy eyes. And I was like, this is why you need eyelashes and eyebrows. (laughs) But in that decision, I also, because I was put into early menopause, was experiencing a lot of hot flashes. And so I took off my veil and I was like, this is where I'm at. This is where I'm at. My faith is not going to be weakened by not wearing my scarf for me personally. It's not that public expression was no longer serving me. I felt at that time the way it had. And so I decided to take it off. And then I put it back on for a few more months. And then I remember calling my dad and being like, hey, Bubba, I'm coming to Egypt. When I'm there, when I'm at the Red Sea, I don't want to wear my scarf. He goes, Sada, I don't care what you do. You can walk around the world naked as long as you always leave a window open for God, as long as you always leave a window open for your faith. And I think that type of freedom to explore really made me aware of Being a Muslim for me and being able to practice my faith wasn't dependent on if other people could see it. My wearing of the hijab wasn't serving me the same way it had through the age of 14 to 26. It wasn't providing the same depth. And that's not to say that someone should take it on and take it off and be flippant with it, but that was my journey with it. And the need to be really authentic to where I was with my practice and with my journey. So I want to I want to ask another question. Cancer was in your 20s. When did you go when did you do Hajj? When when did you go to Mecca? And can you talk about that experience a little bit? Sure. Eight, I did it at 18. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, I did it really really young. I have been back since fairly often. I've been very lucky to do that not for Hajj but for Umrah. Wait, sorry. What is that? I'm ignorant. I mean, I was just going to tell you. So Hajj is the mandated fifth pillar of Islam, that if you can afford to do it, you should do it. And that is a very, it only happens once a year. And it happens two months after Ramadan ends. And it's signifying, there's ritual that happens in that, that is signifying different parts of belief and stories in the Muslim faith. I I didn't realize it was during a time of year. I thought year round people made their pilgrimage. No, it actually rotates. So the Muslim calendar is lunar, right? So it goes about it goes back eleven days every year. So Hajj will rotate throughout time and it only happens once a year. And that's why it's such can be such a difficult and costly experience for people. Everyone who's Muslim is trying to do it and it costs a lot of money. And so when we were doing it, it was I was eighteen, so this is I wanna say two thousand and five, two thousand six. It was in the winter, so it was in December. So that's obviously a very desirable time because Saudi Arabia gets really, really hot in the summer. And I was lucky enough to do it with a whole team of women. So it was my mom, my sister, my aunt, my grandmother, and and one of my uncle's wives. And so it was a very, it was all women and it was an amazing experience. So the way the, the way the procedure or not the, the process of pilgrimage is, is you spend a few days in Medina and then you spend a few days in Mecca and it's a 10 day trip. So you start in Medina, that's where the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu is buried and you do prayers there, but then there's rituals that you prepare for to do when you're in Mecca. And so in Mecca, it's about three to four days where you go from different sites and you 
do a lot of just spiritual reflection and prayer and you move from a diff so you'll move from where Mecca is to this place called Mina and from there you'll come back and you'll end in Mecca again. And so Can I ask a dumb question? No dumb questions. Go for it. Well just only dumb host. <laughs> <laughs> no, I understand the difference between Sunni and Shia, but I assume both because it's a pillar of Islam. So both Sunni and Shia go, but do they interact? Is there tension between them? I will say from from my experience, it would be really, I was unable to tell if someone was Sunni or Shiite. So, so much of the ritual is the same. I would have not, I mean, I still wouldn't. And sorry, can I ask, I'm not sure which one Egyptians are? Most Egyptians are Sunni. I mean, I didn't even know till I was in high school that there were two sex of Islam. <laughs> yeah, like in high school, I didn't know I was Punjabi. I just knew I was Indian. Yeah. Yeah. So I was like, oh, okay, cool. But you wouldn't be able to tell. And I don't, I've never heard of someone not being able to come. Hey, but it's, it's observed in both, in both versions of the faith. So to yes. Speak. Yes, for sure. For sure. So what was that experience like? I mean, starting with Medina, I guess. It was amazing. So it was a sense of you didn't want to sleep, or at least I didn't want to sleep because I was so excited to be there and to be, I felt when you have that many people who are just sharing the energy and faith of, of one thing in such a deep, you can't help, and in such a deep way, you can't help but feel that. And so I remember at one point we left Mecca to go to this area where you do, you stay for three nights and there's this ritual where you, you stay under a tent until sunset of the night before to the next day sunset. And my aunt had encouraged us to leave the tent we were in because she wanted us to go to this place called Wetfet Arafat. So Wetfet Arafat in Arabic means the place where they found or met each other. And it's believed that that's where Adam and Eve found each other. And most people don't leave their tent when they're there. They're just there reading Quran or making prayer, which in Arabic is dua. And they might not choose to leave their tent. And so my mom was like, no, we're leaving the tent. We're going to go to this. I won't say it's a mountain because it's more of a hill, <laughs> but we're going to go to this hill. And I think that was one of the memories that sticks in my head the most because I saw people from all over the world. And I saw people from all over the world helping each other, sharing food, smiling, talking with each other, creating camps with each other, just supporting each other. I mean, saw the most beautiful black skin to the most pale blue-eyed person, all of them there for one reason. And that was to fulfill this this belief to fulfill this practice. And I just felt like I saw humanity. And we got to this mountain and it was it was pretty hot. I mean, even in December, Saudi Arabia is hot. And this woman had an umbrella to protect herself from the sun and she gave it to us. And she was like, you guys can use it. And was just like, everyone was just sharing and, and supporting each other. And I don't know. And part of the practice is the humility of it all. So people are not supposed to be lavish with their wealth. Their men are asked to wear the same garment also to humble themselves. And so it's just getting to see people be people with one another without knowing their status, without knowing how much money they make, without knowing who's just knowing that you're all there to practice and to share this spiritual quest with each other. It was it was humbling in a way I'd never I have yet to have that type of experience. I would say the closest experience was the support I found from other cancer patients of just that love and humility 
it was humbling, I guess. It's interesting because we live in such, and I apologize, this is offensive, but I think, and I say this as an atheist, American society has become very secular or Western society. It's not that faith is a bad thing, but a lot of us don't have faith in common and we want to be on eggshells with each other about each other's faith. So I don't, Jesus, short of like Coachella or a Springsteen concert, I don't think we have these experiences together. Does that make sense? Like a a political rally, maybe? The last guy, maybe that was some of the appeal. And I don't want to say I have a deep respect for religion. I'm, I'm obsessed about it culturally when I travel. I visited many Muslim sites. I visited many Hindu temples, etc. I want to go to Jerusalem, all of these things. Because you can still sense that without being a part of the faith. I, I will argue that being part of the faith, you get more of an experience. I cannot go to Mecca. But it's special, I guess, is what I'm trying to get at. And it, the way you describe it proves my hypothesis. It's a special thing that you have to have faith to get to. Now, I want to ask another the question another way. So you told me your husband converted to Islam. Yeah, yeah. Has he done Hajj yet? Is that a thing he wants to do? Or I guess he has to. He hasn't. And I think when someone becomes Muslim, at least my feeling is it has to be for them. I think one of the first conversations my husband and I had when we met, I told him, hey, I'm Muslim. I don't, as far as I know, I have to marry a Muslim, but I'm open to exploring that with you. And I, and I don't want you to become Muslim for me. And he said, don't worry, I would never become Muslim for you. <laughs> which which was Oh, you you could hear that the wrong way. <laughs> yeah. But for me, and I think for him, what what we were getting at and what we were really coming to was that for me, my faith is for me. And I think where the line gets drawn is that that's really where it has to stay. It's not for me to judge people. It's not for me to d- to make a decision about someone or think that you need to be where I'm at or that where I'm at is better than where someone else is at, right? Like none of that can exist if I'm truly staying true to my faith, right? It's so internal. And I didn't want someone to become Muslim for me because I will, I'm a human. I will disappoint you. I will hurt you. I will probably let you down and you will probably do the same thing to me because we're human and that's part of our experience. And we, I think we live in this falsehood that we can be everything for everyone. But what my faith is for me is the thing that I can pull all of or put all of my energy into that and then have that expectation from my faith, right? Like my relationship with my faith. That's the relationship that I can lean on and ask for everything and expect the most of. But another person, I feel like that pressure is unfair. And I think that's where at least my experience has where, that's where I buckle. That's where things break. And so I told him, I, and I was like, good, don't become Muslim for me, because if you do, you're going to probably hate it by the end. And so, so we had a <laughs> well, very- you have, you have to, it's like the saying, before you can be happy with someone else, you have to be happy with yourself. So it's a yeah. decision. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And we were very, very, I think, lucky and blessed that our parents, both his parents, he was raised Catholic from a very Brazilian family for both of his parents migrated here and they were like, cool, whatever. And my parents, Muslim parents. <laughs> Wait, seriously? They were like, cool, whatever? <laughs> yeah, there was no. I mean, I think there was probably a question. They had their ideas around what a Muslim was, but his parents are super. I mean, God bless. I love them to death. They're really 
chill people. I don't know if you've had a lot of Brazilian friends, but they are very chill <laughs> as yeah. a culture. Brazilians do tend to be pretty chill. You're right. Very chill. They're like, yeah, all right, nice. <laughs> <laughs> and my parents had a very similar response where they were like, Sara, explore what this is. If he decides to become Muslim, he decides to become Muslim. If he doesn't, he doesn't. And I remember this conversation. Oh, wait, how would your parents have been if it had been the other way? Because my wife is Catholic. I did not convert. But what if it went the other way? And I mean, I, and again, I'm not meaning to be offensive because I know your faith is core to who you are. But what if you had made the alternate choice to convert to Catholicism? How would your parents have been? Would they have been all Brazilian-like? Like, I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think so. And I think because, right, that is a very, I don't know if that would have been a possibility Right. For me, it, so much of my relationship with my parents and my relationship with my community is, is centered around the STEM and being Muslim, that that would have been very different from the person I was or am, I guess to say. But I think they, I mean, I don't know. I don't know how they would have reacted, but I, yeah, I don't know. I don't think they would, would have been happy. <laughs> so did they, I mean, before you met him, did they have expectations for you? Did they give you a sense of who you should have married? So interesting for you to ask that. So I think having got cancer at the age of 21 got me a get out of jail free card. Yeah. 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 I hear you. Where right. everyone. Like, yeah. Yeah. They all backed off. They all backed off of me because I would have at that age, it's at least in our culture, that's the prime age of getting, meeting someone, getting to know their families or doing setups and, Definitely within our culture, people still get, get set up. It's not arranged marriages as much, but definitely setups are very, very normal. And part of it, I think, had to do to the fact that I had ovarian cancer and I lost both my ovaries in that. Right. So I, I was also going against culturally the thing that is, is valued, which is being able to have a family in a traditional way of like children. And that could be a really hard sell for maybe Egyptian men. I don't want to say a blanket comment, but everyone just backed off of me. No one was trying to set me up. And if they were, it was usually with divorcees. And I was like, no, I'm good. (laughs) I'm not broken. Thank you. Exactly. And so I think that gave me the freedom. I think, and it also gave my family the viewpoint, Sada is going to discover and find who's right for her. And I got very lucky with my partner, who I love very much. And we share so much in terms of being first generation and in terms of him choosing to become Muslim and what does our spiritual growth look like together. And we also bring so many different things to each other too. He chills me out (laughs) 110%. (laughs) It's because of your hair. It's and. This you haven't seen him, but he has long curly brown hair too. <laughs> so we look like twins often. We were at a wedding in Egypt for my cousin, and someone, one of my mom's old friends, came up and she goes, "I didn't know you had two girls and a boy." And she was like, "Oh, that's my daughter's husband." <laughs> <So> <laughs> we really, really did it up with that. <laughs> so great. And there's a Chinese saying that talks about how people, when they've been together for a long time, or if they're if they're just meant to be, that they start to look alike. And I think that's exactly what it is. You met your soulmate, and so therefore you guys look like siblings. 
<laughs> we do share a lot of hair secrets. Back to your question around hair. We actually became really good friends because I was helping him with his hair. We were classmates. And I was like, you don't know how to do That is such a pro move for picking up a guy. <laughs> so great. That's so, so great. I said, I got this really good conditioner. Let me help you with these tangles. <laughs> and and the Sounds like a bad rom-com. Yeah, <laughs> really, exactly. exactly. Really is. So Sada, if we if we went back to let's say that thirteen year old girl that you had talked to us about in the beginning of this conversation, what advice would you give her today? I think I would tell her it's gonna be okay. That all of those difficult things or things that I'll struggle with or you'll struggle with, your faith will help you get through them. Your community will help you get through them. The people who love you will help you get through it. I always think like, especially when I think back on my cancer experience, the fact that I can even say looking back at my cancer experience is a huge blessing. And thinking of the phone calls or the gifts or being a student and having the almost being naive enough to just hope for the best and having the drive of just having classmates around me and professors and having my family in Egypt and that there's there's a lot of love out there that will carry you through hopefully all things, right? It's yeah. beautiful. It's so beautiful. So, Sada, we've covered a lot of ground and I would love to go deeper, but with a few minutes left, I don't know, Sharon, what do you think? Do you think she's ready for speed round? I think you've earned a speed round, Sada. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's What's do it. something about you that people don't expect? I think that I have such a strong spiritual practice. I think on set, it's not something I reveal very quickly. And so I think I've off. So I'm, I'm an ordained minister and I've ordained seven weddings, all of which were not Muslim weddings, all of them secular weddings. And I think that speaks to the space I create for people to be who they are when we're together. And and for me, I think my faith actually has allowed me to do that. So I think that's one thing. Wow. What is a book, movie, or television show with characters that you can relate to? <laughs> I thought about this question a lot. <laughs> and I will say I'm a horrible reader. <laughs> Just going to put that out there. Will we give you the option? There's movies and TV shows. <laughs> yeah, that's why, I, we, that's why we list them all. Like whatever... I, I appreciate y'all because this is probably a very, feel free to judge me, but there's this movie that came out a few years ago called Someone Great on Netflix. And it's about three women who are just supporting each other. And I find that to be the movie I put on when I'm feeling alone, especially in the last year to feel connected. I had an amazing, amazing circle of friends when I was in college and into my post-college years. And that movie just brings me back to a time of being in your mid to late 20s, just running amok, like calling your girl, being like, let's go to the club. Let's go dancing. Yes, I used to go dancing with a veil on and and I don't drink alcohol. So people were always confused when they'd see this veiled woman breaking it down on the dance floor. So for me, that movie just reminds me of like, the beautiful relationship women can have with one another and all types of women, right? People who identify as women. And I just, that movie for me just brings me a lot of joy and it's not centered around this, the main character getting the guy. It's just centered around this love between these people. So that it's someone great. And I just, I don't know, it just gets me 
in the heart every time. What's your favorite mom dish? So my mom is an amazing cook and she makes her best dish. She makes something called sa'a, which is eggplant, but she does it. She fries it and puts like jalapenos in it and red sauce and some peppers. And it's so good, whether eaten hot or cold. And whenever she comes, I'd make her make a huge pot of it and we put it in the freezer and then we're eating from it for months. So you had yeah. me at fried and jalapenos. I need that yeah. recipe. Staff. Exactly. I, I will send it to you all. It, it's it's pretty simple and it's amazing. <laughs> what is your least favorite food? What don't you like to eat? Oh, I hate sausage. And I have really this, yes. <laughs> Wait, come uh, on, but hang on. That's a, hang on. That's an obvious one because you're a practicing Muslim. You yeah, that's come true. Because pork, right? It, but let me give you a background on it. So there's now a bunch of beef-based, not pork. All right. All right. Yeah, yeah, and my yeah. husband is Brazilian and he grew up with eating pork and sausage. And so he always tries to get me to eat sausage. That is not pork, <laughs> of course, and not in the pork covering. And I'll be like, you can't have sausage for dinner. And he like gets at me and I'm like, I just didn't grow up with it. So to your point, right? Like as a Muslim, it was something that doesn't exist for me. Yeah, there's, then- a, there's a predisposition or pre-anti-disposition. Yeah. 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 <laughs> but yeah. sausage, I don't know. Can't, it's just the whole process is weird for me. <laughs> All right. I'm going to allow it. I'm going to allow it. <laughs> I guess not allow it. <laughs> Who's someone you would want to interview on a podcast? Dead or alive? Yes. Either. Yeah, either one. So someone asked me this question last week, and I think I'm going to say the same person, Malcolm X. And I say that because as a Muslim in America, he represented so much of my ability to feel part of the U.S. experience, both as a civil rights activist, but as a Muslim, his story around his experience with Hajj really identified with my experience. And I just... I don't know, something in me has always felt really drawn to his life and his message and his impact. So Malcolm X, I know that's like, maybe sounds really lame, but I, I really <laughs> think about him first a lot. Time, it's, no, 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 hang on. It's the it's first time the someone first. has said that. And from the lens of being a Muslim in America, that's, yeah. that's a fascinating one. It really is. What does being a modern minority mean to you? I think just existing and continuing to exist with no excuses and no apologies for that existence and deepening our connection to one another. I think that allyship of minorities is super important and to see each other and to hold each other. And in this country, especially in how charged things are, it's like loving each other in spite of being told we don't necessarily always matter as much as we should. That's great. Well, thank you for spending time with us today. Thank you. Yeah, Sarah, this was a lot of fun. It was so nice to speak with both of you. And I just really appreciate getting to hang out with y'all for this time. And that's our show. Like what you heard? Please subscribe, leave a review and a five-star rating on your favorite podcasting platform. Now more than ever, people need to be hearing these stories. Please share our show with a friend or three. Want to learn more or got something to share? Visit modmypod.com or email us. Hi, mom, at modmypod.com. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at modminpod. We'd love to hear from you. Now, here's a preview of our next episode. 
started doing stand-up. 2001, 9-11 happens. I started doing a bunch of community activism work. Yeah. There was suddenly this massive demand for Muslim speakers to just calm down scared white people. Churches, synagogues, libraries, candlelight vigil events, college campuses. I would get invited to be a speaker on Islam. Tell us why we shouldn't be scared. And it's a fucked up framing in retrospect, but obviously I understand this is a civilizational flashpoint and arguably the dynamic between the so-called Muslim world and the so-called West are really cultural fictions. Like, when will Muslims in Europe integrate? Yeah, it's like, have you heard of Bosnia? Do you realize that the mayor of London is Muslim? There's all these cultural, legal, governmental fictions propagated. This is a big question I wonder all the time. Who controls the rhythm of the algorithm? That's it for now. I've been Raman Segal. And I'm still Sharon Lee Tony. Remember, we're all modern minorities out there. We'll talk to you soon. 